Welcome to the GTB podcast for October 2020, volume 58, number 10. My name's David Fasakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, uh, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you once again for joining us for another one of our remote podcasts, which we're recording at the beginning of September. I think it's day 162 of the UK lockdown. And I don't know about you, but it feels like autumn is on its way. Uh, school's going back. We're about to do the university drop-offs in the next couple of weeks, and the evenings are chilly. James, what's it like in Newbury? Yes, we've, we've certainly had an autumnal air, first dew in the morning, and uh, jumpers are now regular wear. Quiet here on the COVID front, we've had still reduced levels here, so that side of things is all going well. We're just trying to work out how we're going to organise our flu vaccination programmes. That's tending to be the, the big thing at the moment. And how about consultations and kind of routine appointments? What's, what's the pattern at the moment? So it's definitely busy, uh, very busy. We're trying to increase the number of face-to-face consultations we offer. We're now beginning to offer people the choice if they would like a face-to-face to begin with. So that's beginning to come into place. But we, having opened up various sort of gates, such as the e-consults and emails, we're finding that overall the number of patient contacts we have is much higher than it was, say, six months ago. And people aren't concerned about coming back into the to the practice. They're happy to to come in and see you. Yeah, in general, that's that's not an issue. I think um, one or two people, I think, are have perhaps previously, you know, a month or two ago, um, delayed. But actually, currently, that doesn't seem to be an issue amongst our patients. Okay, so life is beginning to get back to some form yes yes i mean I, it's it the difficulty we have really is is containing it somehow we you know there's always there's always now things to do so i think workload is is the issue for us and we're just a little bit anxious i think everyone is anxious that of course schools go back perhaps we'll see a lot more fevers a lot more cold coughs and and i think people will then worry is this covid or isn't it and, and want a consultation to check that over so i think that's the concern we have is that we already started a point of quite high workload and we're just worried it's going to get that much worse. And as you say, on top of that, you'll have the whole logistics of the flu campaign to sort out. But um, more about that perhaps next time. OK, in this month's recording, we'll talk a bit about the editorial. Uh, we've got a forum article that we'll delve into a little bit. Talk about the main review article and then uh, quickly review the latest case report that we're featuring. Great. And let's let's kick off with the editorial, David, which uh, is one written by yourself, Making Medicines Safer. Yes, thank you. Um, I thought I'd use this editorial to highlight a couple of publications that have appeared over the last few months. Um, both particularly address issues that are, I think are really important to DTB and which we have featured, or which have featured regularly over our 58-year history, and really about the safety of medicines and regulation of medicines. And I guess they're topics that Andrew Herxheimer, DTB's founding father, he championed particularly during his time at DTB. So here we have two reports, or two publications. The one from the First Do No Harm, which is highlighting the need to make sure that, that you have safe processes for regulating medicines. And then we have the plans from the MHRA for how they will regulate medicines after we stop having any involvement with, with the EU's uh, regulatory processes. And I guess it's about just saying, well, 
let's make sure it's right, let's make sure it's safe for patients, and let's just not make it so fast that we're sacrificing safety just to get medicines through quickly. Because there's be nothing worse than having an unsafe medicine causing harm and then undermining public confidence for the future of medicines regulation. So it's kind of trying, drawing those two themes together. Yeah, I mean, I think I was, I, the timing actually was perhaps, was stark, wasn't it? I mean, I think, you know, the MHRA says in its business case that it is committed to having an accelerated licensing route in place by the 1st of January. And I think that's intriguing because, you know, we know from our work with the ISDB, the International Society of Drug Bulletins, and particularly work uh, in France with Prescrear, that a huge proportion of drugs that go down an accelerated licensing route end up either being demonstrated to be of no value or being withdrawn because of uh, safety issues. So I think just as, as you say, first do no harm comes out saying, let's make sure our systems are absolutely safe. The MHRA comes out saying, we're gonna really produce a really nice, fast, slick system. So I hope, I mean, I, one, one trusts that these two, as you say, will be married up and, and actually we'll have the benefit of both. But as forever, you know, I think DTB always understands that there's no such thing as a safe drug. It's the structures around it that, that keep things safe and it's important we have those in place. And that, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, we, we've been through kind of the, the, the process is long enough to know that it is quite possible that these two reports have, have existed and they may not influence each other. I mean, we hope that they will. We hope that the, the first do no harm report will have a significant impact on, on how medicines are regulated but you just hope that actually the MHRA haven't got so down, far down a process that it hasn't been able to take into account all the recommendations of uh, the first do no harm report. Indeed. Okay this month we've got a forum article uh, it's been written by one of our editorial board members that talks about many things but particularly promotion of, of pharmaceutical products and some of the issues that have resulted because of that. Uh, James, do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, so this is, a, I, I thought, a really nice summary of marketing, particularly pharmaceutical marketing. And, and Mike goes into looking at both the direct marketing that perhaps we're all aware of that, you know, is, is the old fashioned sort of aggressive, simple, this is a great drug, use it, to the, to the more subtle indirect marketing that we see now through funded research, through publication in medical journals, through the development of key opinion leaders, and the use of patient support groups. And Mike uses four areas to really, I think, demonstrate this very clearly around antidepressants. And we all remember the Defeat Depression campaign in the late 1990s that was run by the Royal College of GPs and the Royal College of Psychiatrists but actually was also one third funded by manufacturers of antidepressants. And this was, you know, a campaign that was designed to beat depression by diagnosing it more frequently and not missing the diagnosis. But of course, as a consequence, it also led to the increased use of SSRIs. But also Michael talks about atypical antipsychotics and olanzapine. Opioids for chronic pain is something obviously we are very acutely aware of now. And perhaps more of the moment, atrial fibrillation and the use of novel anti-oral anticoagulants and, you know, is should we or should we not be screening for this? So I think it's, um, 
it's funny how a bit like London buses, we get more than one in a row, but I think this is a great article on marketing and just reminds us that things are much more subtle than they used to be. And it's really important that we understand this when looking at uh, drugs and their uses. And what's again struck me from, from his piece was that particular strategies that are used, particularly around defining unmet need and then championing that such that it becomes the norm that you, you, you go and treat it. So your example of defeat depression, well, we must go and look for depression and then we must treat it. Um, similarly with the opioids, the big campaign to make pain, was it the next vital sign that you have to measure? Fifth vital sign, um, which you 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 are you, know, you should be doing as part of your routine medical practice, asking people about about the pain, and those became almost accepted as norms, didn't they? That you you should do this, and yet the unintended consequences we've seen, particularly with the opioids, is you know, still well, we're still dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember, you know, if we go if you go back twenty or thirty years, asthma was the big one, and it was simply a case of. You know, the more patients you've diagnosed with asthma, the more medication for it you can you can sell. So we're not saying that, that you know, there aren't places for drugs for many of these conditions, but we're just saying perhaps be aware of some of the influences that are encouraging us to, to use these medicines and, and, and question them and, and see whether they are you know, entirely appropriate. Exactly. OK, thank you. And our main article is a review or drug review um we haven't done one of these for a while this is looking at three new drugs so you get three three drugs for the price of one in this one three drugs for migraine so let's quickly go through this one what are they so these are three uh, monoclonal antibody drugs we've got freemanezumab we've got galcarnezumab and we've got irenumab um, so three drugs with pronunciations that will always fall easily off the tongue. <laughs> yes. And, and what are they licensed for? So these are licensed for the management of chronic and episodic migraine. And they are all work on calcitonin gene related peptide, which is a neuropeptide, a potent vasodilator that's found widely throughout the body, including in the cardiovascular um, system, smooth and skeletal muscle. And there is evidence that CGRP, if you like, this, this peptide has a role in migraine. It seems to be found in elevated levels in jugular venous blood during migraines. And if you give someone a sumatriptan, it drops to normal as the symptoms improve. So this is the concept behind these drugs. These drugs either block the receptors or they bind to CGRP itself and stop it functioning. And as a consequence, the idea is that they are effective against episodic or chronic migraine. And how are they given? So these are all injectable, unfortunately. They have a long half-life, at least 27 days. So they're all given as, as monthly injections. And I think one is actually licensed to be used three monthly. Some of them require a loading dose to begin with as well. So these are drugs that are not oral and are not cheap either. Okay, well, let, let's cut to the important bit. Uh, evidence of effectiveness. Now, my understanding is that they, they obviously they looked at both chronic and episodic. So the sort of benefit they showed for for either chronic or episodic migraine. Yeah, so it's probably worthwhile just explaining which those two are because they're not. I don't. I've never tended to to sort of divide migraines into episodic or chronic. But for the state for the use of these studies. 
they basically said episodic. If you get less than 15 migraines a month, you get episodic migraine. If you get more or, or equal to 15 a month for three consecutive months, then that's called chronic. And basically, the studies were designed to look at each of these elements, episodic and, and chronic migraine. And what to remember as well is that very often prophylactic success, the use of drugs uh, in migraine that are successful, often we talk about them being effective if you get a 50% reduction in migraine attacks. So I think it's important we recognize that the level of success that we're talking about here is actually a 50% or more reduction in um, episodes. So it's not, we're not talking about eradicating someone's migraine completely. And the sort of you know, reduction that we saw in the number of migraine days per month over placebo with these drugs, what, what, how many yeah, days? Yeah, so if we take Erinumab, for example, look at the trial on episodic trial they had, which was a three month study, um, 955 patients at baseline, they were having about eight migraines a month, and Erinumab reduced that by three to four days, depending on the dose, whilst placebo during the trial reduced it by about two days. So you can see that there's a, there's a sort of two, two day difference between the two. If you looked at the proportion of people who had that 50% reduction in their migraine episodes, 40 to 50% of people on the erinumab had that reduction, whilst 27% had that with placebo. So that sort of gives you an idea of the sort of number game. And, and most of them we're talking about four to five days reduction, perhaps in the number of migraine episodes over the period, over the month. And difference between that and placebo being two or so days. It's that sort of element, um, those sorts of numbers. Okay. And they're all similar across all three drugs. Yes, they're, they're all pretty similar in, in efficacy, really. One of the things actually is quite interesting is that there's actually very little evidence for what I perhaps would consider real-life study. In other words, using these drugs in people who've already tried other drugs, other prophylactic drugs, because that's probably where they're going to be used. And we have one 12-week study done on erinumab where patients who'd already failed on two to four other prophylactic drugs were given this. And we saw actually a reduction in only about two days over the month in erinumab versus 0.2 of a day for placebo. So you can see that in real life, those numbers of three to four days are actually much lower when we, when we use this drug in the more difficult cases. And harms or referring back to our edge harms adverse effects yeah so that actually um only two percent of patients came off the studies because of adverse effects constipation muscle spasms and a hypersensitivity these drugs can create an immune response when you use them and so hypersensitivity is another issue but actually these numbers were really quite low overall and is it the cost significant yeah, so we're talking about between two and a half thousand and two thousand seven hundred for six months treatment. So we're talking, you know, five thousand pounds plus a year. So these are significantly expensive drugs. And if you compare that with the sort of 
prophylactic or the, the range of prophylactic drugs you might use now so what what would you typically prescribe so if you were using let's say toparamate or amitriptyline we're talking about between six pounds and 37 pounds for six months so it's a factor of you know 100 plus it's a significant difference and where do you see these fitting in well it's a difficult one i mean there's no doubt about it migraines can be a significant impact on people's lives really can we lose a hundred thousand days of work each day in the uk for migraine so um i think it's great that we've got a drug that seems to still have some effect over and above when we've tried a lot of the current prophylaxis um, so i think there will be patients who do benefit from this but picking those out and making sure that we actually stop the treatment if it's not effective in those patients will be the the answer so these patients are going to need sort of really well managed care to ensure that the, the people that are going to benefit from it get it because you know 15 percent of the population adult population have migraines so you know this this could this could break the bank if we don't do it properly okay thank you very much and then finally this month we've got a case another case report um what was this one so this was a, a case report of rifampicin-inducing shock in a patient uh, who was having treatment for latent tuberculosis. So this is actually interesting on a number of levels. This is the, the case is a 25-year-old Asian female who had seropositive rheumatoid arthritis who had been trialed on the usual disease-modifying drugs such as methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine and sulfasalazine and so therefore was put forward to have an anti-tumor necrosis factor drug atenocept but there was concern that she had latent um, TB and therefore was started on a combination treatment of rifampicin in isoniazid and actually was unable to tolerate it due to nausea sickness and weight loss so after two weeks stopped it and they organized some blood tests, felt that she was fine. So actually decided after about two weeks to restart her on just rifampicin monotherapy, so just that. And within 10 minutes of the dose, she developed diarrhea, vomiting, fever, blurred vision, and was admitted to A&E in septic shock, as it seemed. And the case report just goes on to talk about this issue with rifampicin that you can get a, a hypersensitivity reaction to it, which is thought to be IgE mediated in most cases. And it's important that you know we remember this quite rare issue is particularly a risk in patients who've had multiple doses of rifampicin. And of course, we're using these, um, these new drugs such as Atanacept more and more. They're things that we need to be aware of. We're looking for latent TB more and more as a result. And I think, therefore, it's quite a useful uh, lesson in just reminding ourselves about this excellent thank you very much actually i, I want to say one more thing because there's an irony in this which i think is actually really interesting so after all this they obviously decided that the patient shouldn't have rifampicin and they decided that the the chest pain the woman had had when given methotrexate was probably just reflux esophagitis and decided to give her methotrexate with a proton pump inhibitor and there was, I just felt this is a real irony here because, you know, a good history, good checking up on patients with adverse drug reactions is really important. But also it's getting it sort of in perspective, because if one looks at the cost of treating the latent 
TB, the impact that the, re the subsequent drug reaction she had, it would have been much easier just to give her a proton pump inhibitor with the methotrexate several weeks earlier. And not run into all the risks and the problems that they did. Exactly. Sometimes we make things more complicated than we need to. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. Thank you very much. You can find uh, these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. Uh, we would certainly love to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany uh, this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us at dtb at bmj.com. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for November's podcast. Thank you.